we live in a deeply wounded world that is marked by separation. The separation of economy from biophysical limitations. The separation of parents and their children because everybody has to go to work, which is just a mad concept. <laughs> separation of church and state, even though that's probably one that I'm pretty keen on. <laughs> separation of men and women, separation of like races and classes and everything. And, it's, and, and even the separation of experts and their little silos the separation of creativity into different forms of artistry, your filmmakers and your photographers and your writers and your whatevers. And I don't know what that is. I don't know if that comes back to the eye, to this sense of trying to grasp at a sense of self and fearing that I, that self, will get lost in the collective if we don't categorize and label. Welcome to Entangled World, where we explore our interrelated existential, social, economic, ecological, and technological challenges, their underlying drivers, and how a more beautiful world might emerge. I'm your host, Najia Shaukat Lepsen. I'm a daughter of Pakistani Muslim immigrants, a mom, and an intersystems thinker. Join me on a journey to discover what is uniquely and meaningfully ours to do at this pivotal moment in time in service to the sacredness of life. My guest today is Rachel Donald. Rachel investigates why the world is in crisis and what to do about it. A climate corruption journalist, she is the creator of Planet Critical, a podcast and newsletter read in over 125 countries, which explores the intersection of the energy, economic, ecological, and equity crises. She also regularly presents on the relationship between systems and narrative and is currently writing a book on violence. Rachel speaks about her experience as a climate corruption journalist and how her reporting has revealed patterns of exploitation and extraction that are rooted in perverse economic systems. She talks about how she initially thought business was the answer to the climate crisis and came to realize that our for-profit economic system is directly opposed to a livable planet. Rachel explores how our capitalist system commodifies everything and pulls us apart so we can no longer rely on the collective and are forced to meet our needs in increasingly individualistic ways. We talk about where our ideas for separation might have originally come from. Could it have been back in the days of Plato and Descartes who talked about the split between the body and mind? Could it have been the invention of the plow which required us to feel like separate and superior beings to animals because you couldn't torture an ox all day to do your farming work for you and still believe in its sacredness. However our ideas of separation emerged, our fragmented consciousness may underlie the global challenges we face, and a return to wholeness is now needed to avoid civilizational collapse. To close, Rachel shares inspiring examples of incredible work being done by people around the globe, co-creating a more flourishing future. This is a wide-ranging conversation. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you do, please subscribe or follow on your favorite podcast app or subscribe to the Entangled World Pod YouTube channel. Rachel, welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to have you on today. I have been listening to many episodes of your podcast, Planet Critical, for um, a while now and have found it to be 
so inspiring and informative. And so I'm excited to turn the mic around today and ask you some questions. Thank you so much for inviting me. Honestly, I'm just, I'm thrilled to be here. Very exciting to be on the other side of the mic. Like, it's just great. <laughs> I just rocked up, barely ready, just ready to talk. <laughs> it's a lovely thing. Thank you. Well, so to begin, how might you introduce yourself? Yeah, what does that mean? Whatever it means to you. Okay. I ask oh. it as an intentionally vague question because right. I'm interested in hearing what yeah, people I like say. That. <laughs> I like that. I like that. I would say it depends on the setting. I have no one fixed way of introducing myself. So sometimes I introduce myself as a climate corruption journalist, often when I need some clout in a situation. But I really like to introduce myself as, well, I do, as maybe like, I don't know, I do a lot of things, especially when speaking to people that are very role specific and role defined and like, old paradigm just to see how they cope with it which is normally not too great i am a person so on this show on your podcast i will introduce myself as i am interest i'm a person who is interested in revealing reality in whatever way that means i know what you mean by the context and the setting and sometimes when you're in certain situations where people want the one line the one hmm. thing that you do as if we're just one-dimensional beings, yeah. which obviously we are not. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I introduce myself. I say, I just say, I'm working towards regenerative and more beautiful world. Oh, I like that. I get looks from people that are like, I like that. what does that even mean? But it's nice, right? Because it opens up the conversation to, for yeah. the next person to ask, oh, what does that actually mean? Um, yeah. Actually, do you know what? Yeah. yeah sometimes I say... Oh, yeah, I investigate why the world is in crisis and what to do about it. Yeah, sometimes using a verb as well. Hmm. People can think that's a bit grandiose, yeah. though. They get a bit like, what is that? But what is, but what? Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I wanted to ask you about being a climate corruption journalist mm -hmm. for several years now, what are some of the repeating patterns or human behaviors you've seen in the stories you cover? And why do you think that is? Yeah, okay. So it's interesting. We have to split that question apart, right? Because repeating pattern is exploitation, like cor corruption. <laughs> um, and I am primed to mm. see that because that is what I hunt for, but exploitation. But I am hesitant and reticent to say that exploitation is a human behavior exactly. We are within an exploitative and extractive system that rewards that kind of behavior and puts pressure on people, essentially, especially people with power to maintain their power, to expand their power, and often through these means of ex exploitation and extraction. So it's human behavior, but human behavior that is really facilitated by a, a wider, much, much more complex system. And we'll dig into that a little bit more before we get to that, I, I wanted to just ask you, what was the impetus for starting the Planet Critical podcast and, and what are you hoping results from it? During COVID, I wrote, I, I wrote a novel. I like, quit my job and I wrote a novel and then I came out the other side and I was like, oh, what do I want to do with my life? And I was in that thinking of like, 
I think business is the answer because business and corporations, they have so much power. So if like, we can redefine what it means to be a business, then that will ripple out and affect politics and culture and society and all that kind of stuff. And I was interested in sustainability because I, and I think I'd listened to Kate Rayworth on the Freakonomics podcast show. And I'd find that really interesting. So I came up with this idea for a sustainable publishing house um, and <laughs> built a business plan <laughs> and created this whole like regenerative writing and publishing model and was going to print everything on uh, stone paper. And one of the parts of the marketing for it had been an other focused podcast where like I would get really big authors like Margaret Atwood, for example, on to discuss the book of a debut author. Because when Margaret Atwood's book comes out, she does like, what, 20, 30, 40 interviews about her own book. And you don't need the 21st or the 31st or the 41st. And I'm sure she would absolutely love to use her social capital to platform somebody else. Um, anyway, the business transformed. It morphed. It became smaller, like more achievable. Spent six months working on it. The day before my 28th birthday, I burst into tears. And I was like, oh, I don't think I actually want to run a business, though. I don't think this is the, the solution. I don't think the for-profit maxim is going to help. And really didn't know what to do, but launched the podcast. And obviously it wasn't a writer's podcast, but it was about, it was uh, for people who are pissed off with capitalism. So it was just looking at economy, like local economies, different economies, our current economy, um, and how impacted we all are by capitalism. And I was really, really enjoying doing that. And I got lucky because I came up with this mechanism of everybody platforms if someone else at the end of each episode. So like, pretty much the network which of i've stolen from you great good love it like it's, it's such a wonderful regenerative model because it meant that i only really needed to get like a single toe in the door of a community interview one person and they would like get the next person on etc etc so it it grew fairly i suppose it depends how you define grow but it traveled well fairly quickly i would say in the right kind of circles and then Six months in, I interviewed, maybe even more than six months, Steve Keen. Yeah, nine months in. Mm. I interviewed Steve Keen on the economics of climate change. And I'd already been looking at the climate crisis through a systems perspective with my journalism by being producer of Radio Free Sarawak, which was the only independent news show in Malaysia that was run by Indigenous people for Indigenous people with help from a very small team in London. And I'd seen the systems of how illegal logging is impacting the indigenous peoples and it's impacting like the local weather and the climate It's impacting the global climate. And it's driven by this collusion between corporation and government and like this network of elites that are really extracting from their people and extracting the nation's resources. And then this like system of global elites of people that just want capitalism, even though it's extractive and exploitative, and even though it's harming people turn a blind eye to all of these things that are going on. So as long as they can continue trade with the nation and I, and it, this was driving the climate crisis. And then I interviewed Steve on the economics of climate change. I was like, this is it. This is exactly what I want to focus on. This system. How, like, the place where all of these things interconnect. Like, the center of the web and the web itself. And I've been really lucky because, like, I've 
I rebranded at that point. It wasn't called Planet Critical before that. That was in October 2021. And it became the podcast that investigates why the world is in crisis. And it just, like, the, the internet, the, the awesome internet just found it and loved it and have been amazing and supported it. And I just love, I love it so much. I'm so, I have the best job in the world. Every week I get to speak to people who are, like, yeah. super smart and super caring and super lovely. Yeah, I feel the same way. And I, I love hearing stories of people who are doing this work and like how they've gotten to it. And I think we have some parallels. So I started digging into, I would say, what was happening globally when I was working in public education systems leadership. And at the time, I was really focused on trying to understand why even given tons of philanthropic investment and amazingly smart, dedicated people that are trying to improve public education in the U.S., like why is it still that things are pretty much the same as they've been over the last 50 years? And the students who come from wealthier backgrounds tend to continue to do better and continue to move upwards in society and in air quotes. And the students who come from lower income or marginalized backgrounds are, are just continuing to Fall, fall behind in the very sort of reductionist way that we measure what education is, right? Which tends to be focused on student achievement. But that sort of led me to really unpacking the climate crisis and wanting to understand what, what was at the root of causing it. Because at the end of the day, I was like, it's great if we improve public education around the world, but if we don't have a planet to live on, then it's not really going to matter all that much. And so I started to then really try to unpack what are the root causes? What are the biggest leverage points? And as you can imagine, very quickly came to see how interconnected the crisis is to the very systems that exist, to our economic system, to our political system, to our our sort of our worldviews, our culture. And I think the place that I'm at now is really digging more into making, I suppose in many ways what you're doing, trying to make some of those interconnections more clear and helping us to better understand what those interconnections are so that we who are working towards a better planetary future across different sectors can come together and collaborate more and think more holistically and think from bring a more sort of systems thinking lens to things. So I think your story just really resonates with me as well. I've been spending more time, especially over the last year, really trying to absorb the work of more indigenous writers and thinkers and teachers and there's been so much that has resonated with me in this sort of almost like I remembering things that I have forgotten in a sense, like a there's just like a, a deep truth in a lot of the wisdom. And one of the one of the areas I'm exploring on this podcast is how we can integrate indigenous and traditional wisdom in the context of our modern world and how we are working towards addressing our global crises. And so I'm just curious to hear, particularly with your work with Radio Sarawak in the community there, like what aspects of indigenous wisdom have particularly resonated with you that you would like to see become more integrated into our modern worldview? 
first of all, is radio free, Sarawak? So, oh, thank you. So, yeah, I'm going to burst a wee bubble here. I mean, it there wasn't it wasn't anything about indigenous wisdom. It was about human rights. They have the rights, the political rights, and the land rights to that land, and they depend on that land for their survival from like a biophysical level to a cultural level. And the state was completely trampling those rights underfoot and didn't give a shit. So it wasn't, I didn't have any conversations with any indigenous leaders about the wisdom of things we could learn in that context as the producer of that show. I was fielding calls from them because there was a bulldozer in their territory again and they they needed media attention or because there were men with guns that were coming down to protect the illegal logging that was happening or the fact that there like the state had thrown somebody in jail or was ignoring their legal case like it, they are fighting tooth and nail on a bi- on a biophysical political legal cultural level not a spiritual level and maybe that's because it not really but this is a thing sometimes i think we really romanticize the plights of certain peoples around the world that from what i've seen they're not engaged in a spiritual fight because they don't have the luxury of being engaged in a spiritual fight. They're engaged yeah. in a really real fight. I did have the absolute privilege of hosting a man called Mutang, who is from, he's indigenous, he's from Sarawak. He's been a, he was a political refugee in Canada. Obviously now he's a Canadian citizen and that's where he's lived for 30 years, 30 years plus. And he was best friends with Bruno Manser. He was the Swiss guy who was, I mean, he went missing in the jungle, but he was allegedly <laughs> killed by the Sarawakian state. And they did some immense activism together. And I hosted him and also a politician from Papua New Guinea called Gary Jufa. And one of the nights we sat around talking and... I was just bathing in the stories of indigenous wisdom, essentially. And it was really interesting to hear the similarities between these two cultures and then the disparities and also the the vast differences, even within their small territories. In Papua New Guinea, you've got got the, um, the ocean tribes and the mountain tribes, the coastal tribes and the mountain tribes and... The, the mountain tribes are like more, much more violent because it's a harder way of life up there. And then the coastal tribes are just really peaceful people because the land is really abundant. And right, learning from Mutang about headhunting and the spirits of the jaguar and what, how the peoples are meant to treat the forest and how, how they live with her, how she is a spirit and each tree is a spirit and how they exist in this amazing dance, essentially with her and how sad it is that she is being destroyed and you also hear from other cultures like over in Peru Pachamama the spirit of the earth so obviously there is these wisdoms which I think are intuitive truths as well right I think if you speak to anybody that's feeling in a good grounded place that has spent a day in nature they will reflect back if they are allowed to they will reflect back this like 
deep knowing that we are all interconnected and we are all interdependent. Um, and I think that it's really important that we invite more of this this wisdom in in a very yeah I'm very weary of any wisdom that gets written down and then becomes gospel there's such a difference between wisdom and gospel because wisdom by its definition evolves over time and as we add knowledge to the knowledge field and like garden from it but in Radio Free Sarawak yeah no they did not have the luxury of sitting around and talking about that because they were fighting very real political apparatus that is trying to kill them and I'm so grateful that you're covering the, those stories because those stories aren't often covered. You definitely don't see it in the mainstream media and you might see it here and there, but for the most part, they're not really covered. I mean, I remember listening to several conversations that Tyson Yankaporta, an Indigenous leader from Australia, Aboriginal Indigenous leader from Australia, was talking about just how much the people that he has lived and grown up with essentially are, are just still continuously being displaced from their land mm -hmm. and just continuously being. And, and then it's, and then after that, there's the, the post-traumatic stress that comes from all of that. And then the mental health issues and the drug addiction and all of these things in these communities are just being decimated. And then, many of us in the West then turn around and vilify these communities and say, oh, yeah, look at them. We don't have anything to learn from them because, look, they're, what are they doing? What are they achieving? How are they being productive in our sense? So, so I'm grateful that you're covering some of these stories. I think for anybody who's interested, and I assume everyone who's listening is interested because of the nature of your show, Monga Bay is one of the most fantastic news sites in the world. They cover they try and cover just about everything that's happening to vulnerable peoples around the world, especially indigenous peoples. And whenever something geopolitically is going on, I go and read the coverage in Mongo Bay because they just yeah. manage systems, journalism, systems journalism, systems understanding journalism, complex journalism. And they have such amazing geopolitical awareness of what's going on because their sources are often like, indigenous peoples from all around the world. So Mongo Bay is an amazing place to get the news that is important, like the, like the topic that we're covering, but also just all of your news, quite frankly. It's, it's one of the best news sites in the world, in my opinion. I'll include that in the show notes. Thank you. Yeah. And one of the other things that came to my mind as you were speaking before is, so I have a five-year-old and he loves being outside, probably like most five-year-olds, unless we dig that love out of them. <laughs> but I remember when he was a baby, we used to spend, he used to just want to spend hours walking outside. We would just walk for three hours in the morning. I'd be like trying to drag him home for, to eat lunch. And my observations of him is that the way he interacted with the natural world was as they are living beings. Like there was no difference in the ways that he was interacting with a tree and in the ways that he would interact with a person. And I just now reflecting back on that, it just feels, it, it just makes so much sense to me because I do think that, that there's that, like you were saying, that intuitive wisdom that we're born with that our culture often takes out of us and, and rips out of us. And 
you know, so he's now, he's, we're lucky that we, he, we live close by to this brilliant 100% outdoor school. So he gets to be outside all day. And so I'm trying to maintain that in as much as I possibly can. That's awesome. I mean, there's interesting stuff about child psychology, isn't there, about like the development of the self. So if you put like an 18 month old in front of a mirror, they don't like they will see themselves and they'll say baby, but they don't recognize I, I am that child. And it's just this really interesting. So much of the problem with our current society and economic models that everything is atomized and individualized and siloed, which is why everybody needs to consume more because everybody needs to possess the thing. But even that psychological journey within self uh, as self develops and like before one has that sense of self that this is an I and that is the world and then you recognize people as a reflection of I and thus that which looks like you is going to be more I than that which doesn't look like you and that which is a tree doesn't look anything at all like I and therefore cannot be akin to I in any way. Whereas before you have that like process which is vastly impacted by that atomized siloed culture in which none of the spiritual teachings are like allowed essentially without being told that you're a nut job in the West. before that happens then it's great because you see you see kids exactly as you're saying intuitively moving around the world understanding that all of these things that are living are just sit there's manifestations of the same thing i hadn't actually thought about it in that sort of child developmental psychology kind of way that there's it almost feels they're coming from a place of wholeness we could go down a whole rabbit Mm -hmm. hole there but yeah so a few months ago you gave this brilliant talk to engineers at ost university in switzerland i'm not going to try to pronounce the name perhaps you can because i know i (laughs) butcher it (laughs) i thought just this brilliant synthesis of everything that you've learned from talking with the diverse guests that you've had on your podcast and I'm sure your other journalism work. It was really excellent and I would highly recommend anybody listening to go check it out on YouTube. And one of the things that I was struck by was how much of what you talked about is related to systems theory and complexity science and you often did it using poetry, which I thought was just beautiful and brilliant and a way to engage the sort of right part of our brain more so than the left part that we're often engaging so much. And yeah, so I'm just curious as to, I think we were talking about this a bit before, but where I've come to in my journey of trying to dig and understand and to root causes and how everything is connected is that I feel like our sort of general lack of understanding either cognitively or in a more embodied sense, the fact that we are all, and when I say all, all of life, the plants, the animals, the humans are interconnected and are completely interdependent with one another. None of us exists in a vacuum no matter how much capitalism tries to sell us that story, that like this fundamental misunderstanding of the world being separated is perhaps at the core of all the destruction that's happening. And I'm just curious to hear like what, what your thoughts are on that. You've been on this journey as well. Of curiosity, just before I answer, what was it in my lecture that made you 
arrived to th- this question of, of separation? I think the first was when you were talking about Plato and ancient Greece and the, right, like where the separation yeah, split. and then came up in, in your beautiful poetry where you talked about, you know, linear versus complex. Yeah. Separation. It's interesting. There's this other theory that the agricultural revolution is where it all went wrong. And there's like lots of people that mm-hmm. say this. And I think it's really important to caveat here that there was no agricultural revolution. Like there were lots of different societies existing at the same time. And then just like eventually that became the dominant mode. But it wasn't as if all of Homo sapiens just suddenly went, oh, plow, that's what we'll do. But this is interesting. I think David Graeber and David Wengo talk about in in the dawn of everything. Exactly. Yeah. So I think... But there's this interesting theory that essentially because we enslaved animals at that point to do our work for us with the plow, we had to create a distinction between us and them to justify that enslavement. And so we created like man and beast and like man and nature. And that's the first separation and that's the original trauma that we need to work through. And I think that's a beautiful theory. I have no idea if it's true. I think everything and nothing is true all at the same time. But we live in a deeply wounded world that is marked by separation. The separation of economy from biophysical limitations. The separation of parents and their children because everybody has to go to work which is just a mad concept. (laughs) Separation of church and state, even though that's probably one that I'm pretty keen on. (laughs) Separation of men and women, separation of like races and classes and everything. And it's, and, and even the separation of experts and their little silos, the separation of creativity into different forms of artistry, your filmmakers and your photographers and your writers and your whatevers. And I don't know what that is. I don't know if that comes back to the eye, to this sense of, trying to grasp at a sense of self and fearing that I, that self, will get lost in the collective if we don't categorize and label. But I think that is also born from a fear of not being held by the collective because nation states in most countries attempt to control the populations, certainly democratic states, by using precarity, economic precarity. And so it's important to not hold people too much so that they continue to stay in line and they self-police, essentially. And that's also how like austerity is weaponized by democratic nations. And that's why you don't see like images of strong men leaders on the streets of democratic nations. It's because the police live in your head. You don't need the police out with your guns and you don't need uh. leaders' faces on every corner because the police live up here in your head doing the work for you. So, yeah, people don't feel held. They feel like they can only depend on I, everything, every single facet of organization reflects that as a truth. And yet in the moment when the world becomes a little bit absurd, like in COVID, and I'm totally pinching this from my own COVID guest. This is not my realization, but this is like knowledge garden for many people. When the world becomes a little bit absurd, like in COVID, and the rules turn up on their head. 
and these like mutual aid networks pop up and people start to take care of one another and you suddenly can depend on the collective and you want the eye to bleed into the collective because oh my god actually being stuck at home for three months by yourself is awful you don't want that there is so much energy put in by the system and this global complex system that we have which has become this kind of like dynamic operating force of its own volition it puts so much energy into separating us into cutting those ties into pulling us apart into entering in like spaces of like silence and into these vacuums between us essentially because we are a collective force and we are so strong, but it's much easier to control and dominate and extract and exploit people if they exist in smaller and smaller groups and there is no smaller group than the eye. Mm -hmm. But just to clarify as well, like that system that acts of its own volition, I don't think there's very many people deliberately tweaking it in like an evil and malicious way. It very much acts of its own accord now and people mm -hmm. are acted upon by it, even those who are making seemingly absurd de decisions to the rest of us that deny climate science or think that climate science maybe it'll just be off a little bit. It's, it acts upon all of us. It separates even those at the top. Yeah, I think there's often a tendency to think that there's some some powerful world actors, whether it's politicians mm -hmm. or corporate leaders that are like pulling the strings mm -hmm. on everything. And it, the world doesn't quite work like that. Like, everything is interacting with everything else to create different incentives and modes of human organization. There are people pulling strings, but they are being acted upon to pull those strings as well. I think that's what's right. key because there are people that have a way like inequitable amounts of power and are doing absolutely wild things. And what's fascinating is like the world does run on a, a set of relationships. The elite who do, they, they really do have a crazy amount of power and they need to be disempowered. But they're not acting upon it as if they are these like free agents who can do whatever they like. They are acting upon it because to maintain their system, their position within that system, they have to perform a certain role for that system. So if you took any of them out and put another body in, that body would act in that almost exact same way most likely and i think that's what's really important to keep in mind when we think about who is an enemy there also has to be compassion and empathy for that enemy and the way that they are acting and the way that they are forced to act as well that brings up for me thinking thinking that i've done around activism and how mm -hmm social movements in the past have been effective at achieving certain goals or how they've been ineffective. And I'm curious as to, this might feel like a little bit left field, but I just wanted to ask it of you because you were talking about powerful actors. And whenever mm -hmm. I think about powerful actors, I think about the not so powerful ones who are fighting against them through activist movement. But I'm just curious, like something I've been thinking a lot about lately is, is and this is a very reductionist kind of general, I guess, question. So, so take it with a grain of salt. Is activism a effective mechanism for creating the change that we need to create, given how complex and how interconnected our systems are? So, like, 
you're part of a social movement that's fighting for labor rights or fighting for racial justice or protecting a rainforest or whatever it is. Like that work is incredibly important. And yes, I think we need to be doing that. We need to be doing everything we can to be stopping the harm. But what I'm curious about is like the blowback of what happens after, which is that in a way it's like what you resist persists, right? In some ways it, it continues to strengthen power of the people that are in those more powerful positions. And I've been wrestling with this idea of what does activism look like if it's done from a more kind of systemic lens, like with an acknowledgement that it's not just the economy, it's not just AI risk, it's not just about nuclear war, that all of these things are interconnected and, and intersecting. And so then what could activism look like if there is a, a broader sort of understanding of that? Do, does that make sense? Yeah, I think there's a lot to, to unpack in that. I think the first thing is like it's all it's always very important, I would say, to be like very publicly supportive of activism as like a blank that like I'm fully supportive of activism that will never, ever change. Should we be having discussions about our tactics? Yes, of course. Do we have to be having discussions about our tactics at the same time as doing actions because we're running out of time? Yes. <laughs> right. So I think right. the main thing is you're talking about a systemic activism. I mean, I would say that this act, all activism that I'm seeing is systemic because it exists within a system, right? There's certainly no activist I speak to that thinks that what they are doing is the one thing that upon which everything rests. However, what I would say is that activism is about activating people and it's also about speaking to people, essentially. Activism is about disruption and that's about disrupting people. It's, yeah, activism is very people-centric and the idea is eventually you get invited to the table to have a discussion the system is not a person. So you have to take action that is going to engage people, whether that is like getting the attention of the people that you want or getting more people on side to engage with the action. But you're never, we're never going to be able to create an action that engages with the, the system because that's just not what activism is. And the system is yeah. made up of individuals. It's made up of people and their interrelationships. And I think that's what's so hard about activism, especially when you get to a system that is like, this global and this complex and people are like oh but why not <laughs> why can't we just think of a way to bring the whole thing down it's because there's no people when the system gets that big essentially there's no one person that holds so much that's worth going and speaking to and i think that's what's really important to keep in mind when we're talking about systems change the only way to change people the only way to change systems is through people because that's the only part of systems that we can actually impact where systems are actually much bigger than people. I've not really thought of that before vocalized, so please excuse, I know that it's a bit convoluted. So I would say that's the first thing. And then the other thing is people have to remember that they, unless they are involved in a movement, what they see reported on is an absolute fraction of what is going on. 
all activists I know are having conversations about systems change. They are in connecting with activists across the globe. They're trying to create an ecosystem of action. They're trying to understand their action within a larger system of action, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. These people mm. think so hard about what they do. They research so much. They read so much. I might not agree with everything that they do, but they're not just experimenting willy-nilly. <laughs> they are really, yeah. really trying to figure it out. And I think maybe this problem of activism has to speak to people in order to facilitate or enact or inspire systems change versus the system not being a person and being able to like redistribute power almost like automatically in order to evade is quite interesting. And also I think that was really interesting is like the system is really happy to sacrifice a person as well. Yeah. If you think about Me Too, right? And the amount of people that were exposed and then got fired from these institutions or like from Hollywood and all this kind of stuff. Oh, we had no idea. Yes, you fucking did. Yes, you did. Yes, you did. You yeah. live in a patriarchal system in which women get abused and children get abused and sexually abused and all this kind of stuff. Everybody fucking knew. And yet the system sacrifices people instead. One of the, I think you mentioned this also in your talk at OST, planetary boundaries. So Jan Rockstrom, a brilliant earth system scientist and professor and his colleagues have used sort of years of research that have found that the earth has sort of nine planetary boundaries, climate change, biodiversity loss, ocean acidification, chemical pollution, freshwater, and that we've crossed five of the nine. And I believe we are on the brink, six. passing the sixth one, right? right Which is yeah. freshwater. Just terrifying. And I think from what probably the average person can make sense of this is that it seems like global governments aren't even really trying to turn the Titanic mm -hmm. and that we're headed towards mm -hmm. the proverbial iceberg. But just as we've been talking about, we also know that from systems and complexity science that small unseen actions can also seemingly and suddenly appear like there's a tipping point that makes what might have been previously unimaginable inevitable. And so I'm just curious, given all the people you've been in touch with around the globe and the stories you cover, do you have the sense that there is a lot bubbling under the surface and that more and more people, including politicians and corporate leaders and people in positions of power, are orienting their work in ways that are more life regenerative and just it hasn't quite emerged yet and we're not seeing it yet. I'm just curious to get a sense of what you think may be there that we're not, many of us are not yet seeing. It's hard to say. I know people that really think that this is the moment, like that, that this is the tipping point. What I see is that climate change is now being described as the economic opportunity of the 21st century. And that is not regenerative. Yeah. So there is, business as usual has very much co-opted the climate crisis. Even the fact that people still call it climate change. <laughs> Sorry, do you know what is happening? That people call it the climate sector. It's become like a yeah. sector to go yeah. work in and a lucrative yeah. sector to go yeah. like find a hot job in. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that doesn't look great. 
I would say that there has always been resistance of people throughout history. People have always been resisting like state control. They have always been resisting oppression. They have always been resisting exploitation and extraction. And I think thanks to the internet, there's now a concerted effort to join up these movements. These movements have always been there, essentially bubbling under the surface. The one thing that I would say makes me like very uh, hopeful about this moment in history is that even though we were having the same conversations that they were having in the 70s when the Limits to Growth Report was published in 1972 saying that if we continue, like here is the first systems dynamic model of all of our world and economic and social systems, and if we continue, we're going to overshoot and there will be societal collapse in the 21st century. We are on track for the worst of those scenarios. Those scientists were very right. We are having the exact same conversation that they were having in the 70s. I think the main difference now is that back then, capitalism was working for a lot of people in the minority world. The West was developing. There was huge growth. There was huge amounts of wealth being funneled to the middle classes. People were being lifted out of poverty. Yada, 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 yada. It was really working for the West. It's not anymore. It is not working for the majority of people in the West anymore. Capitalism has come home to roost. It has revealed its real intentions, and that is to funnel wealth to the top. And so I think that there is a real opportunity for political unrest, whether that could be capitalized on, excuse the pun, by the left wing or by the eco wing or by whatever wing you want to call it, that remains to be seen, I would say. Like we also, something that the right wing is really good at doing in the West right now is embracing and, and spurring on the culture wars like just this ideological distraction essentially from what is really happening politically and societally and economically so if we can like i don't know i think the left really needs to stop fighting those wars and come over and start fighting the real wars based in biophysical reality because we have so much to give in that respect and we have so many good ideas and i think that people are more open to those ideas or would be more ready for those ideas now than ever before because it is just not working. It's just not working anymore. Mm. Like you're seeing farmers in France fighting with the police over water because there's a drought. You're seeing the citizens of Paris setting the the city on fire because their president did a really ostentatious, outrageous thing and just like bypassed parliament to raise the, the pension age, the retirement age, sorry. You're seeing more people than ever in the UK on food banks. A third of children in the UK living in poverty. It's one of the richest nations in the world. And at the same time, like the average wealth of a billionaire during COVID shot through the roof. Like people know that it is not for them. The world has not been built to provide for people. And now that's obvious to a much greater number of folk than before. And I think that... We are very technologically disempowered. Like this whole thing about the Second Amendment in the United States. Yeah, but my guns is, oh, come on. Like you were never going to go and like, you, okay, maybe they stormed the Capitol. You were never going to be able to depose a president with your fucking guns because yeah. your president has drones. Like it's just, you know, it's silly. <laughs> but there are the biggest things. military on the globe. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But there are things that we can do. Oh, actually, this leads me back to the point that I forgot that I was going to say on activism. So this thing about 
you know, does activism only facilitate the continued existence of the thing? In a way, yeah, right. If you exist and put yourself, if you only protest, if you only put yourself in binary opposition to a thing, then that thing has to exist in order for you to continue existing, right? And that's why like protest has to be a part of an ecosystem of action. And I think it's actually why strikes are much more effective action because strikes, just people just go, man, I'm not going to exist in that bit over there. I'm just going to go and exist over here now. Yeah, and it's absurd because you don't yeah. expect me to do so. And it forces people to the table, forces them to the table. Like, oh, please come back. Please, we will negotiate with you because we need you. You have shown how important yeah. you are. And you've shown that you're capable of organizing and going and creating a different system. So I think that I would love to see a general strike. And I think something like that is actually really important for activists to build as well, because we are also seeing civil unrest really bubbling over in places like the United States, because again, of this like facilitation of cultural wars by the right wing, because the left wings are the one that with good ideas and they don't want to admit that. And so more mass shootings, more hatred, more vilification, more hate speech, all of this kind of stuff. I think the left are also, and, and certainly here in the U.S., doing their part to facilitate the culture wars. Sometimes we take it too far with this. We're not going to tolerate anything at all. And it shuts down conversation and discussion and doesn't allow for there to be a more sort of empathic response to the fact that, yeah, we all are part of this system that is, as you said, not working for the most of us. And so... How do we come together to start working on creating something that's better? So I, I think we need to flip the frame on this. So I've got real empathy for the left because they, the left has felt that it hasn't won anything really since the 70s, maybe the 60s. And so culture wars are like this low-hanging fruit because ideology is a low-hanging fruit. Because nobody's ever going to win an ideological battle, right? Because there is no right and wrong in ideology. There's only like subjectivity. And I really understand why the left has thrown themselves into fighting the culture wars because they feel like they can win. And it's a movement that is so dramatically disempowered and has been abandoned by the political vanguard that is meant to represent them as well. So, so much empathy and compassion to people that are out fighting the culture wars. And I genuinely think a huge part of it comes from they don't think that they can fight on any other ground. Also, really important that the left wing stop calling the right wing ideologically um, void, idiots, racist, yeah, national, like all this human, kind of stuff. Yeah. Not true. Like, huge amounts of empathy to people on the right wing who are very scared and have been like led to believe that there is a lot to be scared of and led to believe that there really is not, there isn't a community that just does not exist and it's not possible to exist. And therefore their own personal autonomy is the most important thing if they want to look after what they define as a community. Empathy on all sides, everybody. However, yeah. I mean, the main, the, the frame flipping is going to knock it on the left wing's door and be like, hey guys, you know that, that we actually have the idea. You don't need to go and keep fighting that fight. We actually have some really wonderful policy, economic, social, yeah. legal ideas. You don't have to fight the culture wars anymore. Let's go for that. Yeah. We'll benefit the right. Fruit. Like that will benefit. Benefit yeah. everybody. Exactly. That will benefit yeah. everybody. And that's what I love about the process of deliberative democracy. Because it really breaks down those barriers between people. And you see case studies of 
when topics are introduced in a bipartisan crowd and people are like screaming at each other and it's really ugly. And then by the end of the deliberative process, a few days later, like they all get on and they get it and they actually want the same thing. They want what's best for their mm. community. Now, often the problem is like the definition of community is different because the right wing, they're really good at having a very, very, very small community, <laughs> especially the right wing in power. But when you look at where I come from in the UK and it's this old ruling class, like we literally still have aristocrats and they are literally still educated in the same place and they all know each other and they're all shagging each other. It's just wild. Like the conservatives are very community oriented. It's just their community that they are oriented around. But processes of deliberative democracy really find common ground. And I think that's what's so, 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 so important right now. It's not about finding differences. It's about finding common ground. And I'm really surprised to hear myself say this because I was like a real feisty left, especially when I started this work. And I got so, I was so angry. How can people treat one another like yeah. this? How can this be allowed to happen? How can we have a system of exploitation and extraction? Everybody, it's, it's not fair. It's not right. And look at these arseholes in power and they know what they're doing and it's deliberate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think for some of them, yeah, I think a lot of them, no. But they are acted upon by a system in as much the same way that I am. Um, now it's about building. But we need as it is all hands on deck in this scenario. Yeah. And the world that I want to see is one that is collaborative and empathetic. And to get there, we are going to have to build a collaborative and empathetic world. It's kind of like a non-secretary. It's not, oh yeah, we run the war yeah. and then all of a sudden everybody switches <laughs> to collaborative, empathetic mode. It's like, no, you don't start a war. That's how you build collaboration, empathy. You don't start a war. You invite people into a collective fight. Yeah. So for those who don't know, can you talk a little bit about what deliberative democracy is? Citizens, community members are invited to make decisions about things that impact them. And they come together. Sometimes it's like a, a group of uh, people in the community are chosen and they are selected in order to represent like the demographics within that community. Or sometimes like the entire community is invited and those that are interested go along. And ex the, the problem is presented to them. Um, experts then come in over the course of a few days to explain the different parts of the problem and explain different parts of the solution. And then the community has like a facilitated discussion to deliberate what are we going to do about this essentially and through that process of like knowledge and access and deliberation and bipartisan deliberation 10 times out of 10 the community comes to a solution that everybody agrees with and everybody wants and then because everybody wants it obviously it like travels up to the council level or whatever level and they blame that's it and then by force of that, people get more and more invested in politics because they see that they actually have an impact. And so like, it just ripples out, essentially. So it's essentially like, like bottom-up decision-making and people who research and deliberative democracy, like the Democrat Democratic National Conference on Citizenship, DCOC, in the United States, they show that you can have this flow, essentially, and you can do deliberative democracy all the way up to the top 
really, where you get to the presidential office or the Senate and they are just implementing the decisions of people. I interview if anybody's interested. Matt Leininger. Leininger. Oh, yes. I did listen to that episode. Oh, that yeah. was a brilliant episode. <laughs> <laughs> I can, I'll share that one in the show. Great. Thank too. you. Yeah. It's interesting what you're, when you were just talking about deliver democracy, the thing that came up for me is the Dunbar number, right? Which is like the sort of, I guess, anthropological concept that groups of about 150 to 200 are what are able to come together and make decisions and exist in a collective. And it feels a little bit like perhaps that's in some ways deliberative democracy is acknowledging some of that. And what I think a lot about is we obviously are not, most of us don't exist in a Dunbar number size community where we're all part of this much larger global system. And something I've been thinking about is, is it, do we have to go back to that? Is it possible to be a truly global society? Or is it that we, in order to live within the planetary boundaries sustainably, we actually do need to be operating on a more local community-oriented scale? Because when people, when it's 150 people and you know each other, you're not going to do the things and say the things that people do nowadays on social media or whatever it is, because there's sort of anonymity and things like that. It's it's just a pondering. So I don't know if you have any thoughts sure, there. I do. So it's not an either or, it's a both and. People get really panicked when we talk about society changing, collapse, and think that we're going to go back to the caves. And like, well, we're, yeah. we're never going to go back to the caves. That's just impossible now at this juncture in history. But we could go back to, I don't know, cities, cities being abandoned and it being really scary. But anyway, the point is we could have a global world. So like, the idea is think global, act local. So you've got eco communities or like eco socialism, communities being sort of and having the right to govern themselves, and then being embedded into a nation which provides education, which provides housing, which provides universal basic services essentially, and then that being plugged into a wider um, community of Maybe it'll be nations, maybe it won't be, I don't know, but a wider community. Mm-hmm. And I think that this collaboration is going to be necessary because we have a limited amount of resources on the planet. And so I like to envision, say, say, say Scotland remained a community, an identity like that, or the UK. Um, and the UK went, okay, we're going to put out, we're going to do a referendum. We're going to ask all of our citizens. What do we want to be experts in? What do we want to lead in? And then it comes back and the Scottish people say, we want to, I don't know, develop the best medicines or we want to build all of the the musical instruments or we want to provide, we want to really get, become the best at, at wind energy and we want to provide that to our global neighbors. And the idea would be that there would be no IP, no intellectual property. So essentially, every, whether that be a nation state or whatever, would decide, okay, we're going to prioritize our resource use in order to develop this thing and become really good at this thing and then give that thing to everyone else. 
So we're still like sharing, but not trading. We're sharing resources and we're sharing knowledge and we're sharing things that we need because, I mean, I want to live in a world where we have modern medicine. I want to live in a world where mm -hmm. we have semiconductor chips. I want to live in a world where we have guitars. Yeah. I want to live in a world where we have acrylic paint so people can paint. <laughs> there's all of these things that we still want. But it's, there's going to have to be a prioritization of resource use, essentially. And I don't see why people can't say, yeah, we want, this is what we want to do. Or maybe you'll be assisted, like, to decide. But I think what's really important in that is like each part of the world have to have like an understudy as well because of supply chains so say i don't know the internet does go down or say we decide actually it's, it's not sustainable moving these ships of semiconductors around so the continent of the americas and the continent of europe and southeast asia everybody's going to have their own manufacturing hub for these things but the ip will be shared by the country that was like the expert in it essentially like this is so much collaboration that we could have it would it could be really amazing like when you think about the world that we could have it could be really wonderful and beautiful really truly amazing and it could be global and it can also be local and i don't see why we can't have both uh, absolutely i think it would just like that couldn't exist in our current context of capitalism right when you're talking about shared ip <laughs> like that has to go yeah. in order. But capitalism right. is going. It's already done. Like neoliberal capitalism is already not over, but Biden's Inflation Reduction Act to change capitalism. That is now a state capitalism because he said, I'm not going to depend on the markets. I'm going to say exactly what we, I'm going to create a market. I've decided what the United States needs in order to play on the world stage. I'm going to create a market for that thing. That's not a free market anymore. So capitalism is already changing. Yeah, we could talk a lot about the Inflation Reduction Act. There's a lot of good in it and there's a lot of not so good in it. Mm -hmm. But I hear you on the point of, yeah, he, he very much invested on the sort of carrots side of the equation mm -hmm. and not, not as much on the stick side. You, I think, have had Simon Michaud on your show a couple of times, geologist and mineral scientist. And in Finland. And I first learned about his work when he came out with his research report, I think it's a couple of years ago now, that essentially shows that there aren't actually enough minerals on earth to complete a global transition to a renewable energy system. We don't have enough to create one generation of a transition to solar and, and on wind and all of the things. And when I first heard that, I was just completely shocked because one, I mean, I, I can't believe the mainstream media isn't covering this, but also what does that mean? What's your understanding of what this means for what our world is going to look like in 15 to 20 years? And I know there's some caveats around things like battery storage and recycling of minerals and materials, but the reality is is right now, from based on what we know right now, we haven't got to a place where we're able to mass recycle these things or figure out how to do that in an effective way. And so, yeah, what is that? What has been your understanding of what that means for what the world will look like in 15 to 20 years? So we have a 19 terawatt society or terawatt hour society. 
and we cannot run a 19 terawatt hour society on renewable energy and that's great that's fine that's totally fine who wants this 19 terawatt society it's not really very nice for most people <laughs> so <Yeah>. renewables is <laughs> it's a really exciting potential physical constraint that will then change our politics and our culture as long as we don't dip into eco-fascism where everybody becomes a kind of surf like providing for the ultra rich and the ultra elite to live highly consumptive lifestyles which is essentially what we do right now what's happening right now but under the guise right. of the free market yeah exactly so i'm well aware there's like this could go two ways but my understanding of simon's research is that i mean he was looking at like europe's plan like if you extrapolated from europe's plan for the amount of electric vehicles and stuff that they would want on the road that we, yeah we just don't have the minerals to do that but we do have the minerals to have a renewable society because, quite frankly, everybody having an electric car is not a renewable society. It's not a regenerative society. But we can redesign our cities and redesign our supply chains and redesign everything so that things are more local. People don't have to travel as much. We can have 15-minute cities where everything that people need is in walking distance. People can start using bloody bicycles. I mean, we literally have a, a <laughs> renewable form of trans. amazing. It's got two wheels rather than four. We would have a healthier society. It's your workout as well. and transportation. Exactly. Like the amount of people that like drive to work and then go and sweat in a gym for an hour afterwards. Like you're all, you're insane. You just haven't quite figured out yet. So, yeah, he is saying that we do not have the materials and minerals in the ground to like literally available in the Earth's crust to power our fossil fueled economy with renewable energy. He's quite right. But who would want to continue powering this? economy anyway. And so I think this intersects with sort of ideas of degrowth, right? And the fact that the the West is over-consuming our share of resources and minerals, while the rest of the world is often being exploited in order yeah. to supply that level of, of lifestyle for us. Yeah. 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 And I, I get a bit frustrated when I think people misinterpret what degrowth is and think that it means, yeah, exactly what you're saying, that people who are degrowth advocates are trying to take us back to the caves. And it's not about that. It's about a more equitable world where all of us have access to the basic needs that we need. And that is, just as you're saying, that is very possible. And that is possible to create on a renewable energy system, just not the one that many of us in the West are living right now. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's everything becomes much clearer when you take money out of the equation. So if you think about reality and you think about <laughs> if you just always try and remember that money is the solution that we've created and it's just a way of moving things around essentially and then it's become a way to produce more of it in order to possess things. That's a new thing about money for the past few hundred years. Anyway, if you just remove money from the equation, all of the resources are available. We have everything we need to build a just, fair world. We've got the manpower. We've got the resources. We've got the existing resources that can be repurposed. We've got the passion. We've got the research. We've got the knowledge. We've got, we've got, it. We've got it. Just need to do everything on a smaller scale. And we just need to stop people from using their fake money coupon things to like 
tank of 15 you know, <laughs> that private we basically jet created out of thin air. Yeah, we just need to stop people taking the piss. <laughs> Essentially, is what we need to do. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, that's another thing I think that when I learned this, I didn't know this a few years ago, that I thought, oh, yeah, the Federal Reserve is in charge of the monetary system and it's actually like physically tethered to something gold or something and, and yeah. obviously that changed in the era of neoliberalism and it's like completely untethered from reality so we're just like spending this monopoly money acting mm-hmm. as if yeah acting as if it's real and it's yeah, not acting as if it means something it's wild it's like <laughs> the biggest mass delusion yeah <laughs> what are maybe some of the more exciting visions and exciting sort of stories that you've come across of people working either at a small scale or a large scale on things that are moving us towards a more beautiful world. I'm wondering if you have any more concrete stories to help crystallize it for people a bit, what this could look like. Okay. Ashish Kathari in uh, India is an environmentalist and activist, and he's doing amazing work with the global tapestry of alternatives. So creating a map of like an ecosystem of action within India and globally because there's so many movements happening and people need to be hooked up to one another and share knowledge and then help one another. Similarly, in the UK, um, one of the co-founders of Extinction Rebellion, Gail Bradbrook, is working on this Being the Change network, which is very similar. And I had an email land in my inbox like just the other day, which was like, hey, look at this ecosystem map. It's an ecosystem, it's a map of the ecosystem of action happening all over, all around the world. So it is amazing. Like people are really doing that thing, I think global acts local thing. Wales as a nation has done incredible things. It's, it now it's not the first country to do this. Like Bhutan hasn't measured GDP as a sign of progress in forever, but Wales recently dropped GDP as a metric for a success in progress. They have stopped all new road building projects because of the carbon emissions. They created the Commissioner for Future Generations. And Sophie High was a woman who had that post for seven years and it was the first of its kind in the world. And she existed in government to remind them to, and she was really good at creating these like interdisciplinary teams and all these different projects. Um, and she is now going all around the world, speaking to governments who are interested in creating the same position. Uh, Australia, Ireland's got a bill before the parliament. Scotland's in the process of drafting its first um, bill, Future Generations Bill, Future Generations Act. There was a private member's bill before the House of Lords in England, but the Tories struck it down, of course. The Tories our right-wing conservative government listeners, for anybody who doesn't know. Who else is doing awesome stuff? I mean, everybody's doing awesome stuff. Isabel Cavalier, who is going, to, who I'm going to platform, she's a Colombian change maker, and she is just doing amazing work out there. And I think you'll really love speaking to her because she has this way of like weaving in like all this amazing like spirituality into like really concrete action as well, which is just awesome. But she's connected mm-hmm. to lots of different movements out there. On that as well, Colombia, they've got like a new sort of progressive government and that government is like actively working with climate activists and inviting them in to talk, which is amazing. And you're seeing this pink tide across South and Central America, like these left-wing governments getting in, Lula, 
in Brazil, I think Peru as well. So this is the thing, like it feels really bad in the West because it, it is really bad, but we are behind. We're behind the times essentially because we have yeah. the most to lose. There's amazing work happening everywhere and it's really exciting. Wales again created the world's first climate crisis college, Black Mountains College. There are conferences happening all the time. I mean, Gen Z as well, like the way that they're just like refusing to work for anybody who doesn't align with like their value systems and the way they're having these conversations when they're so young in a way that, that we weren't. There are activists taking governments and fossil fuel companies to court all around the world and suing them for a breach of human rights, which is really, really exciting. There are other kinds of like legal activists who are either refusing to work for uh, fossil fuel companies or prosecute climate activists. There's a group in the UK called Lawyers Are Responsible. And also some who are working on drafting other forms of like legal action, essentially. There is a guy called Ian Edwards who founded the Bank of Nature who's figuring out how to put fiduciary duty, this idea that we're meant to steward money into pension plans because pension plans are a huge chunk of the global economy. And he's got that before the Massachusetts Senate right now as a bill. I mean, there's so, there is so much happening. There really is. People, my dear listeners, there is so much happening. It is wonderful to see. It is such a privilege to see how wonderfully creative humankind is and how much we all care. I'm feeling emotional. We are so lucky. We are so lucky to be human and we are so lucky to have one another. And there is amazing work happening in every single corner of the world. And I know that it feels difficult sometimes and I know that it feels that we won't win because there's a lot going against us. But that is like an old fossilized dinosaur in and of itself. It is not alive. We are alive. Everything with us here on this planet is alive and life will win. It will win. We will win. And there is going to be horror and there is going to be tragedy because there always is. But we are creative and we are kind and we're smart and we are loving and we will win. Oh, I think that is such a beautiful place to end conversation. Rachel, thank you so much you. for this amazing conversation, wide-ranging, amazing conversation. And yeah, I welcome all the emotions on this podcast. I think it's something as a society that we don't often express in public. Just we should. So to close, you already mentioned her name, who you'd like to platform. Is there anything else you to share about Isabel? She's just, she's wonderful. She's a wonderful person. She worked for 10 years plus with the United Nations. She created an alliance of nations in the global south. She has been a forefront policymaker and, as, and a woman as well in policymaking and is now using all of that very concrete knowledge of geopolitics and how political systems work and turning it into action. And the way that she speaks about action and people and the world and culture change and systems change is musical. It's beautiful. Mm. You'll really enjoy speaking with her. Thank you amazing. so much for having me on, Nadia. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been an amazing conversation. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you.
If you liked the episode and want to hear more conversations where we explore how a more beautiful world might emerge, subscribe or follow on your favorite podcast app or the Entangled World Pod YouTube channel. If you loved it, support the project at patreon.com forward slash entangled world. Thank you for listening and for coming on this journey together.